0: And if you want to grab a seat, it's fun to hear all the buzz and chatter. I encourage you to continue that after the service. A great part of Sunday mornings is gathering together, encouraging each other. Uh, my name is Michael. I'm a church plant resident here on staff. And uh, as you heard David preach, uh, Scott and Zach, our other two pastors, are, have been in Ecuador this past week, along with Kim, Zach's wife. And they've been doing some teaching down there. And actually really connects well with what we're talking about in Second Peter because they're going down there to train pastors to be faithful. And a lot of what we're dealing with in Second Peter is false teachers. So it's really interesting how it connects. And as I was thinking about this morning's passage, I was thinking about the question, what is one of the greatest dangers to the church? And what I realized is I think oftentimes we tend to think of things that are external to the church as the greatest danger. So we tend to think of persecution. Or a loss of religious liberties. We, we tend to sometimes view ourselves as a, a city under siege. And yet, what's interesting is when you ask the early Christians that same question, their answer is not the forces outside the city walls. For them, the greatest danger was the false teaching and false teachers within the city walls. That just like in a siege, sometimes the greatest danger comes from the spy or traitor within who might poison the food supply or open the gate to let the enemy in that it's corruption within the church that often is the greatest danger. So, for example, uh, Irenaeus in the second century talks, writes a whole book called Against Heresies, really tackling this, or Ignatius in the first century on his way to martyrdom in Rome writes several letters encouraging the churches to beware of false teachers, but also the Apostle Paul, uh, when he was on his way to Jerusalem thinking he would never return, wrote these words, or said these words to the Ephesian church. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The danger is within. False teaching, false teachers, and yet, I ask the question to myself, why is it that we then so rarely talk, about false teaching and false teachers in the church today. And I think part of it, right, is that sometimes when we hear false teaching, what our minds jump to in dealing with it is like the Inquisition or something like that. Like witch hunts taking people out. And there's a part of us that just does not like that. But I think we've maybe run to the opposite ditch where it's like we just don't want to talk about it. We don't want to name names. We just don't want to deal with false teaching. Let's just kind of ignore that and we become passive after all the the cultural kind of air we breathe all the time says wait false teaching but that would imply that there's one right teaching and nobody believes that anymore how can you say there's a false teaching right and maybe we've just imbibed that or maybe we just don't want to be called by them you know inquisitors so we we just are silent too often i mean i don't know how many times i've Talk to someone about an issue in their life and and show them what the Bible clearly says about it. And if they don't like it, their response is, well, lots of Bible scholars disagree about that. And then they ignore it, right? Maybe you've had that same experience. Or maybe you've had this experience too where you're talking with someone about the gospel and sharing about Christ. And they're like, look, it's like this. There's a blind guy. And he's grabbing something and it turns out to be the leg of an elephant. Another blind guy's grabbing the trunk. Another blind guy's grabbing the tail, right? They're all right. They're just different perspectives. But, of course, that implies that somebody knows that it's an elephant. There is a right perspective. It's the elephant's the answer, right? Now, if the elephant is meant to represent the world, reality, truth, I know that I am not arrogant enough to claim that I can see all of that. And I hope you aren't either. The only person who possibly could give the definitive answer that it is the elephant is someone outside of the elephant, who made the elephant. That's God. And that's why last week's sermon was so important. Because Peter wanted to remind us there is a sure teaching. There is true teaching. It comes from God through the prophets in the Old Testament, through Jesus, and through the New Testament apostles. Jesus claimed to be God. And he proved it by rising from the dead. And he said the Old Testament was God's word. And he sent his New Testament apostles. So if nothing else, it's worth listening and believing there is something true. Because Jesus said so. And he proved that he's trustworthy. There's a lot more that could be said about that. But I hope you can at least lean in today and say, okay, I'm willing to say with Peter, there probably is something true. And there is a danger to being going off the rails. And that's what Peter wants us to see this morning. That we need to be alert, but not afraid of false teaching. We need to be alert to the reality of false teaching, but not afraid of it. Because God knows how to rescue and preserve his people and deal with false teachers. So we're going to see this in one of these two parts. Being alert, but not afraid of false teachers. So let me pray and ask God to help us to listen before we dive into 2 Peter chapter 2. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that you speak truth into the midst of confusing voices. So this morning, would you give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it? If there's anything in our lives that would block us from listening well, would you remove those this morning? And would you use me as weak as I am to speak forth your words by your Holy Spirit, so that we can all know truth and love it and walk in it for our good and your glory. pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let me read 2 Peter chapter 2. And this is picking right off of where Peter has said that God has spoken through apostles and prophets. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient worlds, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority." This is God's word. So first let's look at the call to not to, to call to be alert to false teachers. I love how Peter starts in verse 1. There's no panic in his voice. He's just stating the simple reality. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. He just states the reality that as for as long as there's been true teaching, there have always been counterfeits. Just like I imagine as long as there's been true money out, there's People making counterfeits, right? That's just the reality of this sinful, broken world we live in. You don't need to panic because there's false teachers around. It's just the way this is in a sinful, broken world. So be alert to that. Don't be asleep to this reality. But just like there's no new reality going on, there's no new methods, really. He's going to share with us some methods of theirs to be alert to them. So he continues in verse 1 that these false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They will bring it in secretly. They love to work from the shadows, false teachers, from the margins. I think of one friend of mine from growing up who's wanted some false teaching, and he discovered it on the internet. It's amazing what you can find with Google, and not all of it is trustworthy, right? But he found this group that was like, all Christians for the last 2,000 years have gotten all this wrong, but we finally figured it out. No one will listen to us, but we have our website proclaiming this truth. And I was like, how did red flags not go off in your mind when you saw that? Like, if no one amongst the majority of Christians, amongst, amongst the majority of history, are listening to these guys, and they have to work from the margins and work on the side, and they even were like, we had to go to Costa Rica to be able to get our ministry going. And I'm like, that's just red flags. They're, they're working from the margins, Be careful of that. And I know that sometimes our generation or a lot of our culture loves, like, the anti-establishment. Like, you can't trust the establishment. The anti-establishment is just as untrustworthy at the end of the day, too. Right? Because the thing is, for every one Martin Luther that we celebrate who stood for truth, there's a thousand other false teachers who are like, I've got it right and nobody else. And even Martin Luther said, I'm looking back at church history. And the Bible and those things combined are making me stand here. So beware the ones that work from the margins. Or sometimes I think false teachers bring things in secretly. It's the old trick of the devil, not with a statement, but with a question. So instead of stating false teaching, they just ask a question that implies something. But then if you push them on, they say, well, I never said that. You're putting words in my mouth now. I just asked the question. And they're trying to slide in these false teachings Rob Bell is a master of this. He almost never said anything. He just always talked in questions, and he made his point so clearly. He didn't have to say, "There's no hell." He just would ask, "Would a loving God really punish people?" And there's a party that wants to say, "Well, no," and that's what he's doing. He's trying to teach falsely, but he's secretly working it in. Now, that's at the big capital C level. What might it look like for false teachers to secretly be at work in a local church? Maybe some of you have experienced this in a church context where there's a small group of people, even a small group that's off to the side that's undermining the teaching that's going on in the church, undermining what's going on, but they never will actually address their issues with everyone. It's always from the margins. It's always from the shadows. When we see that, we should have our red flags go up. Truth is not afraid to be in the open. Counterfeits are. Truth is not afraid to be put to the test, because it's true. You don't have to hide. So when you see that, you're saying, this is how they work. But the big giveaway in verse 1, he says, is they deny the master who bought them. They deny the master. If they really are Christians, they're denying the one who saved them. If they're ones who claim to be Christians, they're denying the one who would have bought them if they really trusted. Well, how do you deny a master? You don't live under his rule. He says, do this, and you say, no thanks, master, I'll do something else. And you teach other people to do the same and say, there's no master. We don't need to worry about his consequences. We can do what we want. This is the oldest trick in the book. And I don't mean like the book, like the expression. I mean this book, the book. Genesis 3, the serpent comes to Adam and Eve. They only have one command, don't eat from the tree. That's it, one command. How does the serpent start? Did God really say? It's just a question. But he's undermining. Undermining the command of God. And then when Eve rightly says, no, we actually can't eat it, he says, well, you won't surely die if you eat it. Undermining that the master will bring judgment. That's the pattern over and over again. And I'm not saying... That we should not ask questions, all right, as if all questions are bad. Questions can be good if they're seeking truth. But here's how you know the difference between a false teacher and a believer. A believer, when they have questions, brings their questions back to the Bible for the authoritative answer. A false teacher takes their questions to some other final authority for the answer. And in the process, they deny what the master has been teaching through his word. That's the pattern over and over again. And we can probably recognize this going on even in quote-unquote Christian culture because I've seen more and more Christians who have now started to say we're not going to hold to what Scripture says about gender and sexuality. That gender isn't a biological reality created by God. That marriage wasn't meant to be one man and one woman. They are they're undermining, they're denying the master's teachings. After all, they might ask, I mean, did Jesus give explicit teaching on that? Isn't a lot of that from the Old Testament? And, you know, you can't really trust the Old Testament. There's a lot of weird things in there, like shellfish and you know, other stuff. And what, what are they doing? They're undermining God's word, his speaking. But what is Peter? A follower of Jesus, eyewitness of everything he says, what does he say about the Old Testament? Look back at chapter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And all the Old Testament writers were considered prophets. He's saying, look, the Old Testament is God speaking through his people. You can't just ignore it. You can't. And the tough thing that happens a lot of times with false teaching, I've noticed, is that you can get a mixture in any one person. So you can imagine with me that you like hiking, okay? Anybody like hiking here? I do. Okay, good. All right, great. Um, so imagine you hire a guy to take you on this hike around this beautiful lake. And you love your experience. It's like, oh, it's so good. That was awesome. So then you hire them the next summer. It's like, I want to go hiking in the, the Porcupine Mountains. Can you take me through there? And they go, sure. And you have this great experience. And then you're like, hey, I want to explore like, Yellowstone and see the guys. They're like, okay, sure. And as you're walking with them, they're like, hey, let's like leave the marked out path We can get a lot closer to the geysers. That's just way cooler. And all of a sudden, you're like, well, they've been a trustworthy guide all the way along. But I've read enough stories. to know that people who wander off the path at Yellowstone sometimes don't come back. This is a bad idea. And it's confusing because they were so helpful as a guide by the lake and up in the mountains. But now they're not helpful anymore. That often happens with false teachings. You can have someone who can provide some really helpful teaching on one subject and go off the rails on another, which is why we've got to test everything. So one example I can think of, there could be many, but more recent, is someone like a Jen Hatmaker who can write some helpful things, like a book like Seven calling us to simplicity and intentionality in life, and books that call us to live and do mercy and show kindness of Jesus to others, and yet can go completely off the rails in teaching on marriage and human sexuality. Trustworthy in some things, not trustworthy in others. And it's sad because she's leading people astray. Because if you wander off the path at Yellowstone, you might not come back. This isn't a game. This isn't just competition. This isn't just politics. This isn't just name-calling to put other people down. This is there is life at stake, and we cannot mess around. People who teach us to deny what the Master teaches in any area can't be trusted in that area, even if they're helpful somewhere else. We've got to test it. So I hope even you test what I or Scott or Zach or David or James, when we're up here preaching, I hope you're testing what we're saying by the Word. Because if it's not from the Bible, you shouldn't believe it. And one dead giveaway that people are teaching things that deny the Master is found actually in Verse 10. And it's an echo of what we got earlier, but in verse 10, he describes the false teachers as those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And you can see with verse one there, it's even denying the master is parallel to despising authority, and many will follow their sensuality, that defiling passion, that just living for what you want to do. Whenever you have teachers are just saying, just do what you want. If you feel it, it must be right. That's probably a good indication. They're going to go off the rails. Because you might feel things and feel them very deeply. And yet, we need to trust the God who made us. Who says, I actually know what's best for you. Your feelings can be corrupted. So you need to trust me and my good plan for your life. But another giveaway, Peter says, is not just that they were from the margins. Not just that they deny the teaching of the master, deny the master. But, verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. False teachers are not in it to serve. They're in it to get at the cost of people that listen to their teaching. And you can think of obvious examples, like a guy like maybe Creflo Dollar, who couldn't do ministry unless he had a private plane, which you're going to finance for me. Or you can think of a Joel Olstein who takes advantage of people that, in that same way to get rich off his teaching of health and wealth and prosperity. But we should also not miss the teachers who maybe won't be that extreme, but who avoid teaching what's hard to hear because they know it will cost them people and cost them dollars. You won't often hear false teachers saying words like this from Jesus. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and die, and follow me. Because it's not very popular. You won't hear them say, if you want to be a Christian, I will guarantee you one thing in this life. You will suffer. You will not hear them saying that. That does not win you, people. But that's true. And so when you see those things, when you see the avoiding of those hard things because of the greed, that's another indication there's false teaching going on. So we had to be on alert They always work the same basic way, even if it works out a little different. They're those same basic patterns. And this is important because look at what Peter says in verses 1 and 2 again with me. If they deny the master, they bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality and thus follow them into destruction. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Peter's saying this isn't a game. Life and death are on the line. These false teachers, life and death is on the line, but also all the people they bring with them. And when they call that road to destruction Christianity, they blaspheme, they speak poorly, wrongly of what Christianity actually is. And it destroys, and it dishonors God. I think of in college when I knew two gals, I was trying to, Talk to and share the gospel with. you. had many, many conversations. And towards the end of the year, they came to me one time and said, Michael, we finally get Christianity. I was like, yes, awesome. They're like, yeah. We had the, the Catholic chaplain on campus come and speak at our world religions class. He told us that Christianity is just about loving your neighbor. That's it. And my heart sank. Because I knew this Catholic chaplain, I'd engaged with him a lot, and he wasn't even Catholic. I don't call him Catholic because he was Catholic. He wasn't even Catholic. He didn't believe the Bible was God's word. He didn't believe most of the stuff in it, called it all fables and myths. He didn't believe you need to trust in Jesus to be saved. I have no idea why he even called himself a Catholic. But my heart broke because these two girls I'd been trying to share the truth with heard a respectable Christian tell them they didn't need to repent of their sin, they just need to love people. And unless God somehow got a heart, hold of their hearts later in life, they are on the road right now to eternal destruction. This is serious. We're not playing around with false teaching. This is why Peter is saying, All right, you've got to pay attention. They're going to come in here, and this is what they're like. So, are you testing everything you hear by the word? Whether it's a blog you're reading or whether it's even Christian radio or whether it's a pastor's books, whatever it is, are you testing it? Are you saying, oh, they quoted one verse, but let me read that in context to see if it actually is saying what they're saying. Are you holding fast to the word? Do you know your Bible well enough that you know the truth so you can detect the counterfeit? Right? Peter just earlier in verse 19 of chapter 1 said, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We have the truth. Pay attention to it so you can figure out what it is from the counterfeit. Do you have a regular practice of doing that? And the good news is we don't have to do this alone. We get to do this in community. That's one of our values here at the Vine. Maybe you're reading something and you're not quite sure about it. Talk to other people. Talk to the people in your in your city group. Ask your city group leader. Maybe send a quick email to one of the pastors and just ask. What what do you think? I'm a little confused about this. Is there anything in the scripture that help me understand this better? Right. Let's test all things so we can be alert to the reality of false teaching. But second and briefer. We're going to look at why we need to not be afraid of false teachers. Because maybe your experience has been that you've actually seen churches, a church you've been part of, yanked apart, broken up into pieces, or people you know and love go way off the rails because of false teaching. And you're like, you don't need to convince me to be alert to the danger. I see it. But maybe there's fear that's built up in your heart. You're afraid of false teaching. There's a desire to maybe control and not allow any questions to to be raised because we don't know where that's gonna go. And Peter doesn't want us to have that kind of attitude. There's there's no fear at all in this. Look, look what he says at verse nine to really conclude this part. He says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The Lord knows. He knows how to rescue, he knows how to protect his people, he knows how to protect them from false teachers. You don't need to panic and be afraid. And to prove that, Peter, from verses 4 to 8, gives us three examples of how God did this in the past so we can know he's going to keep working that way. So what he says in verse 4, he talks about, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. I love Peter bringing up this one first because well, there's a lot of ink spilt over what exactly, what, like, what rebellion were they talking about with the angels, when did this happen, I don't know for sure, it doesn't change his main point. The point is, every time you run into angels in the Bible, their first word is often, don't be afraid, which makes me think they're pretty scary powerful, right? And even when these powerful beings sinned, God wasn't like, oh no, everything's falling apart. He knew how to deal with them. put them in chains and keep them under judgment. So today, if it sometimes feels like, but the false teachers have all the power, God's like, don't worry. I know how to deal with false teachers who have lots of power. I know how to deal with people that are powerful and go off the rails. Don't worry about that. Then in verse 5, he brings us to, to Noah and the flood. He says, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world, Upon the world of the ungodly. This is Genesis 6. And in that passage, if you were to go back and read it, you would see that the Bible describes how every intention of the human heart was towards evil. The whole world always wanting to do evil. it Looks like the bad guys win. But there's Noah and his seven family members. Just eight people. The whole world and just eight that are righteous. And yet, God knows how to preserve Noah And bring judgment on the world. You wanted to walk in ways that would lead to destruction? Here's your destruction. But I know how to rescue even the eight. So you can imagine Peter talking to his readers and us today saying, if it feels like you're vastly outnumbered by the false teachers, don't worry. My people have been there before. I always know how to rescue my people, even when they're vastly outnumbered. And then he turns to verses six to eight. And talks about turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes. He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And verse 7, And if he rescued righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. It says, look, remember that city Sodom and Gomorrah, those two cities? I destroyed them Completely. As great their evil was, I brought an end to it. And maybe there's some part of you here that's sitting now thinking, like, this sounds like a lot of judgment, and I don't know if I like that. The fact is, if you look at Solomon Gomorrah, and I'm, I can't read Genesis 19 because we have more kids with us here this morning, but you should read Genesis 19, you would see how wicked that place was. Level The wickedness on the kind of level of the Nazis. And we all know that if we could rewrite history, we would not let the Nazis win. That evil needed to be dealt with. The good guys had to win, the bad guys had to be punished because we can't let evil go on. And God's saying, It's the same thing with me. Because I'm good, I judge. I cannot let evil go on and on. I will bring judgment to a point. This is serious, he says. And yet, even as wicked as they are, I know how to preserve Lot. I know how to yank them out of that. So if you feel like the false teachers are just so wicked, if you feel like they're so numerous, if you feel like they're so powerful, it's okay. I know, verse 9 again, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment till the day of judgment. God knows how to rescue the righteous. You don't need to be afraid. But here's a question. If the only safe place is to be considered godly so you don't experience the judgment, how can we have any assurance that we are the godly? How can we know that we're the godly deserving to be rescued? Because if God sees our hearts, if God knows everything we've ever done, everything we've ever said, everything we've ever thought, how can we actually stand before him as the Catechism said, with perfect perpetual obedience, we can't. But that's why I love the two characters that Peter mentions to us that God rescues. He mentioned Noah, right? Well, of course you say Noah is described as a a preacher, a herald of righteousness. But do you know what happened after the flood? The first story after the flood, the world is made clean from evil. Just Noah and his family, just the righteous are left. First story, Noah gets so drunk, he passes out naked. Yep, there's godly, righteous Noah. He deserves to be saved. Or what about Lot? The first story after him getting freed and protected from Sodom and Gomorrah, he's hanging out in the cave with his two daughters. He gets drunk, sleeps with his daughters, and you have the nations of Ammon and Moab that get created from that. Yep, there's righteous Lot definitely deserved to be saved from Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you see what Peter's doing even as he's giving us these examples? He's saying the godly are not the perfect people. The godly are people like me and you who sometimes struggle with sin, but there's one thing that made Lot and Noah godly. They trusted God. They trusted in God's saving word. When everyone else was doing evil, God came to, Noah, came to Noah and said, build an ark. And even though it was crazy, he trusted God and did it. He was saved. When, Lot, when Sodom and Gomorrah were about to be destroyed and Lot was there, God said, Lot, everything's going to burn. You better get out of town. And Lot trusted the saving word of God and got out. They trusted in God's saving word. That's what made them godly. And that's good news for us because we have a saving word to trust in. Peter told it to his readers in his first letter. Chapter 3, verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. See what Peter's saying? He's saying, if God rescues the godly, then surely... Surely Jesus should have been rescued. But he wasn't at first. He was not rescued. He endured the punishment that we deserve on the cross. And that's why, if you ever doubt that God doesn't take sin seriously, you should look to the cross. Because on the cross, the Son, Jesus, Offered himself up willingly, and the Father killed him. Let that sink in for a minute how seriously God takes sin. And He did it why? So that we, the unrighteous, by trusting in Jesus, could be considered godly, so that we could be rescued, so that we would not have to experience the judgment. So we could look at verse 9 and say, the Lord knows how to rescue me, the godly, because I've trusted in Jesus. That's why when false teachers say things like, you can have your sin and Jesus, it's life and death on the line because you can't. Trusting in Jesus means saying no to sin and saying yes to Jesus. False teachers lead people to death. That's why we have to be alert to it. That's why we have to call it out. But the gospel also encourages us that we don't need to be afraid because God does know how to rescue the godly. After Jesus was in the tomb, he didn't stay there. God rescued the godly by raising him from the dead, seating him at his right hand, and now, for every person who trusts in Jesus, we are told, no matter what happens, even if the unrighteous kill you, the godly experience that rescue. That is good news this morning. So, are you alert to the reality of false teachers? But not only are you alert, but do you have the confidence through trusting in Jesus that you don't need to be afraid for God rescues? that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church that Jesus is building. So this morning, are you trusting, day by day, in Jesus, saying no to sin, trusting him, being alert to false teachers, and confident that in Christ, there is a rescue for our good and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are the God who made the sunshine and birds and the laughter of children and things that are beautiful and joyful. And yet, because sin is so wrecked things, you also address us not just in a lighthearted way, but you often address us with a weighty way. So I pray you'd help us to be alert to false teachers, and we'd be testing things. I pray, Father, that if some here this morning, whether they're Christians or not Christians, are feeling a weight on their their souls, just conviction of sin, that they wouldn't just run from that, but they would actually see that as your kindness to then say no to sin and to run to Christ and trust in him. And I pray, Father, that for every person here that's feeling that way, if they are not going to run to you, that you would not let that feeling let them go. That for their good, you would press on them until they know without a shadow of doubt that they need rescue. That they would not listen to all the false voices around, but they would listen to the one who made them who says, walk in my ways or you'll die. But good news, my son has died so if you trust in him, you can be rescued. Pray this in your name.